0: Good morning church family, let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of James, James chapter 5, we'll be in James chapter 5 this morning. We concluded our summer through the Psalms, uh, through uh, through the Psalms last Sunday, and this Sunday we'll look at James as we're focusing in on prayer this year in the life of our church. I want us to center our hearts around this text of Scripture. And then returning next week, we'll jump back into the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 15. So I pray you'll join us for our Exodus series. James chapter 5 is an incredible call to faithfulness, to endurance on behalf of the people of God. And also here in James chapter 5, particularly in verses 13 through 20, James reminds us that God uses prayer to increase our faith. God uses prayer to increase our faith. We looked earlier this year at prayer, particularly from Jesus' comments on prayer and what you and I affectionately know as the Lord's prayer. And we saw how Jesus admonished us to pray in the ways in which Jesus taught us to pray, and here in this text today I want to look at one of the implications of prayer. Why do we pray? Well, the Lord has commanded it. Why do we pray? Because God uses prayer to increase our faith. If you'll look at this text of Scripture beginning in James chapter 5, verse 7, I'd like to set this passage in context. Chapter 5, verse 7 through verse 12, the context is suffering. In fact, it's not only the context of James chapter 5, verse 7 through 12, but the entirety in some ways of the book of James is about suffering and enduring persecution. In fact, if you'll look with me back at the very beginning of James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James pins these words. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we come to James chapter 5, verse 7, and we see, This call for patience and suffering more clearly articulated as James pens these words, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and mercy. And above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. James is closing this letter to the church at Ephesus with an emphasis upon suffering as he knows the temptation or he knows the temptation that suffering produces in the hearts and the lives of those who by faith have trusted in Jesus. In fact, we just sung of that a few moments ago, prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love, and there are numerous ways in which that is that truth comes knocking at our heart's door, but for sure through a moment of intense persecution. We understand that. Persecution arises and perhaps we ask the question, God, is Christianity really worth it? In our country, by and large, Christians have avoided intense persecution, but. Even this day all around the world, intense persecution of believers are taking place. I recently read an article in The Voice of the Martyrs about two young men whose parents in the mid-2000s were killed in Africa while they were working among an unreached Muslim people group, and those two young men just made their way back to this country, and not just to the country, they made it back to the to the area and to the location of where their parents were killed. And yet it was a journey for them, for after the death of their parents, one of their brothers really questioned, God, how could you take my parents, who in their mid-forties retired from their jobs, sold everything, and moved to Africa? just to be killed? We understand. If not by experience, we understand by reason how persecution can cause weakness and faith in our hearts. And this is, what, this is what James is talking about. In fact, he gives us three examples. Did you notice those three examples of why we can endure? We should be like the farmer. The farmer doesn't go out to the field and plant a seed and immediately... A crop grows. What does he have to do? He has to plant it. He has to be patient. He has to wait on the late and the, and the early rains. He has to pray. And by God's grace, a crop will grow. But not only the farmer, the, the prophets. What type of response did the prophets get in their lives? Were they held as heroes in Israel and Judah? Or were they persecuted? What did they have to do under intense persecution? In fact, in our main text this morning, James is going to use the example of Elijah, and we'll see him in just a moment. What did the prophets have to do? They were people who spoke in the name of the Lord, and yet they had to suffer and exercise patience. If the prophets had to exercise patience and endure under persecution, James is essentially asking the church, what makes you think you're any better? And lastly, he uses the example of Job. And what does Job have to endure? Intense physical pain. Emotional pain. A loss of everything precious in, in his life. the loss of his, of his family, and yet... James says, look at Job, you've heard of his steadfastness, and you have seen, notice what the text says, the purpose of the Lord. See friends, God is always working, as Paul will write in the book of Romans, God is always working all things for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. I might not see it, I might not understand it, and for sure, and the narrative of Job, there were moments in which Job himself didn't understand it. But what does James say? God had a purpose and was working through that purpose of persecution for James's good and for God's glory. And then James concludes for us this paragraph on suffering by reminding us that as we suffer, let your yes be yes, and your no be no." What in the world does James mean? Yeah, be careful reading James, because James, in my mind, can sometimes read like the Proverbs. In the Proverbs, you you go from one wisdom statement to the next wisdom statement to the next wisdom statement, and you're thinking, how in the world do all of these wisdom statements coalesce together? Is there any main theme running through these wisdom statements? James isn't just throwing out a random wisdom statement for you and me, that the most important thing we can ever do in the Christian life is, well, let our yes be yes and our no be no. I mean, look how the text begins in verse 12. Above all, surely James isn't arguing that the most important aspect in the Christian's life is that you say yes, and you mean yes, or you say no, and you mean no. So what does James mean contextually here? It's in the context of persecution. So we can imagine, as this missionary couple in Uganda, located right on the... Uganda is by and large Christian, but there there is to this day even a large Muslim population. They were serving right up against that Muslim population. You can imagine that night when the Muslim terrorists came through the village looking for the American missionaries, and they knocked on their door. knowing that they were being hunted, the temptation might have been, are you the Christian missionaries? The temptation could have been to effusicate. Well, we're not really missionaries. We're just here teaching the people how to farm. The temptation could have been to say, absolutely not. We're not those crazy people. No, thereby denying Christ. You see what James is saying, friends? Settle in your heart now your conviction that Jesus is Lord. For when persecution comes knocking on your door, you will be ready to give a steadfast answer. Are you a follower of Christ? And the resounding answer with confidence not in who you are, but in confidence in who he is. Yes, I am. So James moves us from this call to express patience during suffering to now giving us the way we endure it during suffering. How do I Continue faithfully before the Lord. How do I walk through intense persecution? James is going to tell us that one of the ways, if not the primary way, God has given us to endure persecution is the gift of prayer. And look what he says, beginning in verse 13. Believers must pray for those who are weak in faith. Is, any, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If he's cheerful, in other words, if he's, if he's not experiencing persecution, let him sing praise. Is anyone among you... How does your Bible translate that next word? My Bible translates that word sick. Some of your Bibles translate that word weak. It's a word that you've seen used before. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 and 30, as Paul is reflecting on all of the persecutions that he has had to endure, he talks about weakness of faith. This is that exact same word Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We also see it as Luke writes in Hebrews about the temptation of of our hearts being prone to wonder under persecution. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. This is that exact same word that James is using in this passage of Scripture. The concept is someone who is weak or sick in faith. Let him who is sick, or if anyone among you is sick, let him call on the elders the presbyteros, the pastors of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We have this command from James that we as believers must pray for those who are weak in faith. For those who are sick in the faith. You see the context Immediately here, James picks up on this same word in verse 13 that he's been reflecting on in the previous passages of Scripture, is anyone among you suffering? This sets a passage, this paragraph in context with what has just followed. James has been talking about what? Suffering. He's not shifted concepts here, neither is James again throwing out random uh, wisdom statements about how we as Christians are to respond in various situations. Is anyone among you suffering? How do we respond when we face trials in life that challenge our faith? Well, first, friends, I want you to know that James is asking the question Is anyone among you? Is anyone among you cheerful? Is anyone among you sick or weak? Or weary he's not asking the question as if perhaps by chance there might be some among you James is writing with a sense of certainty that among the gathered people of God at any given moment there are people here who are suffering who are weak who are weary and faith. And not only suffering or weak and weary, there are people here who are, who are cheerful. They're not, they're not facing any major trial or temptation or persecutions in their lives. So James expresses to us, this is one of the beauties of being connected to the body of Christ. For in this body of Christ are people who are walking through various phases in life. And notice what James is saying to us, we are a gift to one another. Did you show up this morning saying, I'm going to church today so that I can be a blessing to someone? Did you show up with an intention of of seeing a brother or sister that you know is suffering, who's weak in their faith, who's having challenges, so that you might be an encouragement to them? James says there are people who are in the life of the church who are indeed reflecting and responding upon life in these various ways, and what are they to do? They are to call on the elders. One of the words that we see used interchangeably in the the New Testament for the office of pastor or or elder or bishop, three words that all mean the, the same thing, Paul is saying in this moment, or James is saying in this moment in which your faith is weak, you're prone to wonder. How do we respond to that? I say every Sunday morning during the invitation three things. The second thing I always mention every Sunday morning is that Pastor Travis and I will be sending down front and it would be our delight to pray for you. And not only do I say pray for you, I go on to say to you, it's one of the greatest ways we have to shepherd your hearts. See, friends, I'm not the chief shepherd. Christ is the chief shepherd. But one of God's gifts to his church are her pastors. And in this context, James is saying one of the gifts of the pastors to the church is they can pray for you. They should pray for you. They ought to pray for you. See, friends, it's not taboo. It's not bad for you to be experiencing a trial in your life and to say, I need to meet with one of my pastors. Let me take a time out. Don't count this Uh, don't count this time in my sermon length, okay, chief? I'm just making a confession to you on behalf of your pastors. One of the things that, that personally offends me is after you've been suffering for a while, I get news of it, and I call you up on the phone, and you say to me, Pastor, I didn't want to burden you with that. Friends, can I tell you something? Your response in that way is a negation, a rejection of one of the good gifts God has given you as you face trials in life. And let me say secondly to you, if you are at a church where it is a burden to your pastor for you to go to him and share your heart and share your struggle, you might want to consider changing churches. It is God's good gift to you to share your burdens with your pastors. And look what the text of scripture says. They bear a responsibility in praying for you. Look how James particularly defines this prayer. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. You say, Pastor, I knew it. You are a closet charismatic. You've been waiting to bring out that bottle of oil. Some of you went to Israel with me, and you're like, aha, I saw him put it in his pocket, he's bringing it out this morning. Well, that's fine. If you want to do that, I charge $5 in anointing, okay? (laughs) To begin with, at least. what's James meaning here by anointing? Well, we see this word anointing used in a variety of different ways in the context of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. In the Old Testament, for sure, it was used as uh, kings were anointed for office. And in that way, there was no special Um, effect of the oil. In other words, David could have still been king over Israel if he had not been anointed with oil, but it was symbolic. We also know that that oil also was used for medicinal purposes in the context of of Scripture. I think here, James is reflecting upon this use as a, a symbolic expression, not that he is saying just you know, symbolically anoint somebody with oil. I think James is actually calling for this type of response of using some type of oil for anointing, but not that the power is in the anointing. In fact, the primary verb in this passage of Scripture is let them pray, not let them anoint. The anointing is, is subservient, subjected to the prayer. The priority is prayer, and as Doug Moo Reminds us in his con- in his commentary, reflecting on this passage of scripture, and boiling everything down to a simple uh, to a simple point. Doug Moo tells us that this anointing here is God's special attention or care. It's a sign of God's care and attention for you in this moment of weakness. But notice how the prayer is to be applied, and how the oil is to be applied. In whose name? Man, you guys really ought to come to my church. My pastors, they have a special connection to the Lord, and they will pray for you for the right price. Notice, in the name. In the name of whom? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, friends, I don't have any power in and of myself. And guess what? Neither do any of you. Our sole authority lies directly in the power and the working of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for you in the name and in the power of the goodness and the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the power that is at work among the community of faith, bringing about this sense of healing. Now let me also take a pause and just say for just a moment that I don't think an unfair interpretation from this passage of Scripture. I'm glad to argue with you after church is over. No problem. Perhaps you read this passage of Scripture and say, ah, it is absolutely talking about physical healing. Okay. I'm not going to fight you over it. Great. The principle still remains the same, right? If you are physically sick, one of God's good graces to you is you can come to the pastors of your church and they should pray for you. So the priority remains the same. Prayer, and how God uses that prayer and the life of the believer. So we see that believers are to pray for those who are weak in faith, but notice what James tells us here in verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. Believers must trust God to respond to our prayers. Believers must trust God to respond to our prayers. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is Weary. Or some of your Bibles translate that as sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he commit and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power, as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed. A prayer. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. We must trust God to respond to our prayers. Notice how James says this beginning in verse 15: And the prayer of faith will save the one who is weary, who is. Sick, And guess what will happen? The Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, friends, I just want to say to you, I think the honest, the burden that James has shifted subjects and is now talking about physical weakness disconnected from persecution now lies on your shoulders if you're going to make the argument that this is primarily about a prayer for physical healing. Because if so, there's just some weird things taking place in here. And you might find it more comfortable at the Pentecostal church down the road. Praying for somebody? Forgiveness of sins? So you telling me, Pastor, then every time I'm sick it's because I've sinned? Well, in some ways, yes. Every one of us face an element in life. Why? Because of Adam and Eve. We are all headed to the grave unless the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Why? As a result and a consequence of sin. But I think James here is in context talking about sin and its connection to persecution and that persecution leading us to be weak in our faith. So what do we do? We call and ask the pastors to pray for us and we have the certainty of this text of scripture, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is weary. See friends, God works through the prayers of his people to restore our faith. The way we respond to a struggle in faith is not to remove ourselves from the context, I keep running over this stand, The way we respond to struggles in in faith is not by removing ourselves from the context of the people of God. We don't retreat from church when we struggle. Notice what James is saying. We run to the church in a moment of struggle. Why? Because it's one of the means and kindnesses that God has given to us to restore our faith, to bring about salvation in our hearts and our lives in that moment. How many times have we, have you, have I been guilty in that moment of struggle from wanting to retreat from the very means that God has given us for restoration in our faith. It's one of the reasons why, friends, it also greatly pains us to see people who for numerous years can claim the name of Christ and have a tragedy that strikes, and the first thing they do is leave church and not run to church. James says, run to church, and look at its effect in your life. God uses that kindness to bring about healing and salvation in your hearts and in your lives. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Contextually, what sins are we talking about? The sin of being tempted to walk away from the faith. The temptation of leaving the God you love because this moment is too difficult or you think this moment is is not being answered by God in the way that you think it should be answered. It's an expression of a lack of faith and hope and trust in who God is and His sovereign direction in your life and in my life, and James says we should confess it in that moment. The Lord will work about redemption in our lives, and we have the guarantee. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man, some of your Bibles say person, has great power as it is working. Now notice what James has done. He's moved the sphere from us, from pastor now to the context of the gathering of the church. I, Travis, and Ryan are not the only three people in the life of this church who bears a responsibility in praying for you. Notice what James says. Confess your sins to whom? One another. In that moment of weakness, yes, it's right for you to go to your pastors and say, brothers, I'm struggling in this moment. Would you pray for me? And their response should be absolutely yes, but it is also right for you to take that burden or that sin and share it with other brothers and sisters in Christ so that they too may pray for you. Why? The text of Scripture says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, a righteous person availeth much. It has great effect and power. Who are the righteous persons? You. The body of Christ. We are those righteous persons to whom we should be going and sharing our heart's struggles. When's the last time you showed up to Life Group And someone said, I just have a confession to make. I've been a terrible husband the last two months. When's the last time you you showed up in Sunday school, did a prayer request, said, I just have a confession to make. I lied to my boss. I've got a confession to make in this moment in which my family's been struggling. I've not been faithful. I've got a confession to make. At my job, I was asked to place my pronouns in my signature, and I did it because I feared I might lose my job. Friends, if we're honest this morning, the majority of us show up on Sunday mornings and we want everybody to think that we are perfectly okay and there isn't one single problem in my life. We ask the question, how are you? And for 12 years, 99% of you have been coming out the back door telling me, Pastor, I'm just fine. You see the love and the compar- com- Do you see the love and the compassion that God has intended to be woven throughout the body of Christ? This church is... One of God's good gifts to you. Don't run from her. Run to her. Don't hide your struggles. Share your struggles. And you know what the Bible says? God uses that confession to bring about healing in your life and then notice what he does for us he uses Elijah as an example now Elijah is going to be used as an example for two reasons and I'd like to propose to you this morning if you think that this passage is primarily talking about physical sickness Elijah is strike number 22 against your position okay because there ain't nothing to do in the story of Elijah about Elijah being sick or anybody else being sick In terms of physically. But there is a lot to do in the narrative of Elijah with the people of Israel being sick in faith and weak in faith. And there is something to do in the story of Elijah with Elijah being a persecuted prophet of God. Would you take your Bibles with me and turn to 1 Kings chapter 17? We'll move from 1 Kings chapter 17 into chapter 18. And then into chapter 19. By the way, this is just a timeout as well. I just happened to think about this because I know I'm going to get a text message from Chief about the length of the sermon today. Uh, See you hear this word back up here in James chapter 5 verse 9, do not grumble against one another. The fact of the matter is some of you have a PhD in grumbling. i just like to mess with chief. 1 Kings chapter 17. How this story begin? Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Why? Why is the Lord going to withhold the rain of heaven upon the land? God is going to withhold the rain from heaven upon the land because Israel has engaged in Baal worship. They are bowing at the altars of all of these Baals. Or as we say in the South, Baal worship. So what's going to take place here? is a judgment against the nation of Israel. And by the way, that judgment goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, 28 or 29. Read 28 and 29, you'll find it. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 29, at the end, that one of the consequences for walking in disobedience from God is he will withhold the rain. Now, no correlation to what's taking place in Louisiana and the rest of the world right now. We're all perfect, holy, righteous people. So the Lord is withholding the rain from the nation of Israel, why? Because they are weak and sick in faith. Worship of Yahweh has not been sufficient for the nation of Israel. Their hearts have turned away from God, and they've turned, away, turned to all of the false, dead idols that the world has to offer. And God is bringing judgment against him. So what happens? Chapter 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Verse 2. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab calls Obadiah and says, hey, you know, gives him a false narrative and says, go out there and and see what's really going on. But he really wants him looking for... For Elijah, he finds Elijah. There's this correspondence back and forth. And look what happens in verse 17 of chapter 18. When Ahab saw Elijah, Elijah told Obadiah, You go tell him I'm coming to see him today. Elijah's not scared. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? So this is funny, Ahab is saying to Elijah, you're the troubler of Israel. And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have done what? Abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Azra, who eat at Jezebel's table. And look at verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around about the altar and as great as would contain two seeds of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And water ran down the altar and filled the trench. So notice what Elijah is doing. Elijah is restoring the worship of the one true God right in the midst of the debauchery of the nation of Israel's worship of all the Baals. He's calling them back. And you know how the rest of the story concludes, right? Elijah says to Ahab, call down fire for heaven. Let's see if it happens. He tries, nothing happens. Elijah does it. Maybe Elijah's getting a little bit worried. Sends them back up and says, look back over toward the sea. For those of you who went to Israel with us this past year, if you're standing on Mount Carmel, you can look back toward the Mediterranean Sea and you have a beautiful view of the Mediterranean Sea. And the Bible says they looked back over toward the Mediterranean Sea and there was a small thundercloud that appeared on a bright blue sunshiny day. And guess what God did? He rained down on their parade. But what happens following the encounter? Does Jezebel think, ah, this is a man of God. I should repent of my sins and trust in the Lord and follow after Elijah? No, she seeks to persecute Elijah. So chapter 19 verse 2, then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of the one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. And notice what uh, Elijah does now. A prophet of God who just saw the miracle of God. The Bible tells us he's afraid. And what does he do? He went by himself. He went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die saying, God, is it enough now, O oh Lord? Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So, what a perfect example to narrate James's point. God uses prayer to strengthen and encourage the people of God, but even the mightiest people of God among us are prone to fear and sickness of faith. We're prone to grow weary when we face persecution because of our faith, our hope, and our trust in God. But who responds on our behalf? God. Who responded on behalf of Elijah and the nation of Israel? God. And look at these last two verses, verses 19 and 20. Not only should we pray as a collective gathering of people for those who are weak in the faith, we should also pursue those who are weak in faith. Believers must pray for those who are weak in faith, and believers must pursue those who are weak in faith. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. See, friends, the only way for you to see a brother or sister who's stumbling in faith is for you to be connected to brothers and sisters who are living out their faith. The only way for you to recognize that there are people who might be missing in the life of this church is for you to be in the life of this church. The only way for you to know who you should pursue is for you to know who are the members of this church. Friends, it's one of the reasons why we print for you on a regular basis our membership guide, our directory. We print that for you so that you might be praying for the people of God at Woodlawn Baptist Church. We print that for you so that you should know the names of the people in the life of this church. We print that for you, friends, so that if, for example... Dana Truitt, who's prone to wonder, goes on a wandering journey. I do see her back this Sunday. Glad to have you, Dana. Dana. If you don't see her, you know what you can do? Pursue her. Call her. Go after her. It's one of the reasons why we produce, for example, in our worship guide, people who claim the name of Christ but reject the church by their non-attendance. It's one of the reasons why we produce inactive church members in our worship guide, not for you to say, oh, yeah, you're right, I haven't seen Sister Sally in forever. How interesting. No, 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 what we're saying to you is this person is absent from the gathering of the body of Christ, and it's next to impossible for you and me to grow in the way that God has intended for us to grow and be disconnected from his church, go to them and encourage them. Pursue them. And look what our pursuit does. Look at what the pursuit, on behalf of those who are cheerful, does in the heart and lives of those who are weak. It saves their soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Friends, it is not a mean thing for the church to pursue sinners or to call sin, sin. It is a completely Glorious and great and loving thing for the church to run after a wandering sheep of God. Don't reject the pursuit of God's people and claim it to be judgmental. To do so, is to secure your path toward a greater judgment and that greater judgment is the eternal judgment of God see friends God has designed prayer and the life of the church to strengthen our faith and to draw us more closely to God. In what ways are you and I this morning tempted? In what ways are you and I this morning tempted to be weak in faith? You remember Jesus' narrative in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, verse 24. You have this encounter with Jesus. And immediately, the father, this is the father of the child, who's been sick. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said to him, I believe, but help my unbelief. See, friends, one of the ways in which we sin against God as believers is when we really don't believe. When we doubt. When we question the goodness and the greatness of God. For sure, even the prophets themselves from time to time questioned that. That's a natural human response to tragedy in many ways. but we express this sinfulness when we, when we don't really believe as, as we ought. We express this contextually, as James is ta- talking about, when we face persecution, and under that persecution, because of our faith, we're tempted to withdraw, prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love. How do we express a lack of faith? Through sin. Well, Pastor, I sin every day. So do I. This is not what, for example, John is talking about in First John. John in First John is talking about people who have a habit of sinning. Have a habit of having conversations with women who are not your wives. You have a habit of of lying. You have a habit of lusting. You have a habit of stealing. That's what James is talking about. Or... As the writer of Hebrews would tell us in Hebrews chapter ten, verse twenty-five, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day dawning, and drawing near. For listen at verse twenty-six. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, contextually, what is the sin to which he's speaking of here? Neglecting the gathering of the people of God. See, friends, neglect, let me say it this way, perhaps there is no greater way for you or for me to make a declaration that we do not believe in Jesus than when you and I neglect the gathering of the body of Christ. And it's amazing our current culture. We hear things like, well, is it really that important? I mean, who are we to, who are we to judge about that? There are far, far greater things that we should be concerned with. We'll tell that to the writer of Hebrews. But let's just expand it past the sin of the neglect of gathering and let's just apply it to every sin that you and I so willfully and joyfully engage in. James mentioned it, don't grumble. Why do you think James had to tell the church don't grumble against each other? Because we all have a PhD in grumbling. Some of us have just studied it for a longer period of time. Grumbling is a sin, it is toxic, in your heart, and in my heart, in your life, and in my life, on your tongue, and upon my tongue. But you know what God says to us? In that moment, run to the church. Seek their prayers. Believers, those of you who are strong, when you see a a weaker believer, pursue them. Go after them, encourage them. In the faith. For when we do, God is glorified and a wayward, sinful brother or sister is saved, the text says, is strengthened in their faith. Would you pray with me this morning? God in heaven, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the wisdom of your word. We thank you for the joy of your church. We thank you for the blessing of your church. We thank you for the gift of her pastors and the joy of her members. And we pray, God, as we reflect upon the preaching of this word, that you would, in the hearts and lives of everyone seated here today, strengthen our faith, cause us to be people of prayer. Cause us to be people who pursue others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Would you take a few moments, friend, where you're seated today, and quietly where you're seated, reflect upon the preaching of God's word. Do you pray like this? Are you praying for the spiritual health and vitality of the people of God at Woodlawn? Perhaps you're here this morning and you've been carrying a burden in your own life of a struggle. And you recognize today that one of God's good kindnesses to you is to make that confession. Would you ask the Lord where you're seated at this moment to give you the strength to do it. Maybe make that confession tonight in life group or after church to another believer or, or during the invitation to myself or Pastor Travis. As a member of the body of Christ at Woodlawn, are you committed to the body in this way? Are you committed to bearing the burdens of others? Or are you committed to running from them? And you run from them by primarily just being invested and involved on the periphery. You're not really engaged. Would you engage today? In just a few moments, we're gonna stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. Friend, if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ, your life has never been redeemed. You've never repented of your sins and called on the name of the Lord to save you. You can never experience the joy and the benefit of membership like what James defines here, apart from Christ. Would you trust in Jesus today? Perhaps you're here and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ. As we stand to sing in a few moments, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front, we'd be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to come forward and speak to one of us. There are plenty of people seated around you who would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly, perhaps you'd like one of us to pray with you. And what an appropriate response to the preaching of God's word today. We would delight in shepherding your hearts by praying for you. Or maybe you just want to turn to someone seated next to you and pray with them, do so. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you, May our response be pleasing we pray in Jesus name amen would you stand